FBSC Finance brings you 30 Minutes in Finance, your weekly finance-related podcast. I'm your host, David Garbett. Thank you very much for having me on. My name's Edward G. I'm a insolvency practitioner, and I also act as a property receiver. I'm based in Manchester. My firm is called CG & Co. We've been trading for 10 years this year. Um, we act for a number of different high street lenders, challenger banks, bridging houses, private individuals in, in recovering their secured debt against property. And we also deal with more sort of bog standard and complex insolvencies. That's perfect. And, and thanks for coming on, Edward. Um, just for everybody listening, can you give us a kind of a brief description of actually what your key job is as a receiver, uh, what your sort of main business involves you actually doing? Sure. So in terms of a receiver, it's 1925 Law of Property Act. So I'm appointed by the lender under the terms of their, their fixed charge, their mortgage. And I'm appointed as an agent of the borrower, unless the borrower is subject to some sort of insolvency, whether it be liquidation as a limited company or bankruptcy if it's an individual and I'm their agent and I have to act in the best interest of the borrower but I'm instructed by the lender to recover their secured debt. On a a day-to-day basis uh, can you give me an example of, of what that sort of involves like what does a normal day for you look like? I don't really tend to have a normal day I'm sure you'd say the same for yourself every day is different um It could be that I'm discussing a matter which is soon to be appointed over with a lender, talking through the various different options. It could be that I need to speak to tenants to get hold of a tenancy agreement to understand the basis of of the occupation of a property. I might have an application to court under a possession hearing, which I need to deal with. I might similarly be injuncted by a borrower who's trying to uh, prohibit us from carrying out the administration of the receivership. Um, I might be writing a report to a lender, setting out what we've done, what the next steps are, what our recommendations are. Um, discussing <laughs> position with a borrower, it might be that a building is burnt down and we're having to deal with insurers or securing a building, having taken possession. You know, every every day is different. And in this sort of current climate, especially, people are reacting to different different. Uh, announcements and and measures taken by the government and we need to be on board to say well this is what's happened and this is how it could potentially impact on you or revising the strategy that we had agreed on a particular matter so, yeah because as I say at the moment things are very very varied on a day-to-day basis now, it sounds as though um no two days are alike then basically correct in terms of obviously getting into this line of work, how how would one or how would you go about doing it if you were looking to sort of start afresh? A Do you need sort of a legal background or, or what's the sort of um, career path for, for this sort of job? I, I think there's very few people that sort of leave school, college, university and decide to be an insolvency practitioner. <laughs> it's something that you sort of aspire to be. I think that you fall into it through various different means so my father was actually an insolvency practitioner so I was aware of the profession I knew what it involved and I'd done work 
experience of the work for him during school holidays, holidays from university. So I had a basic understanding. I actually worked for a hedge fund down in London and I wanted to come back up to Manchester and this was just a profession that I, I fell into really. Um, my partner, Dan, he left school uh, uh, sort of at a relatively young age and he went in as a junior at a, a national accountancy firm and then ended up in the insolvency department when he then sort of progressed, became a trainee, et cetera. And now obviously he's an insolvency practitioner and, that, and that's how he fell into it. So you don't need a legal profession. We do have in-house solicitors here that will assist us with sort of day-to-day -day issues that we may encounter on particular matters. They're not sort of instructed by any third parties directly. They're mainly as a resource for us. Um, so we do have solicitors, but I would say it's more of an accountancy background that's required for an, to be an insolvency practitioner, you know, an understanding of how to sort of digest and take apart a balance sheet really is the principal skill that you would need. Um, the property stuff seems to be a bit more of an add-on that, that I personally have fallen into. Yeah, but is there any specific, like, exact qualification that you need in order to do this, or is it just a, a really so be, broad understanding? Uh, no, to be an insolvency practitioner, you need to have passed what's called your JIEB, which is your Joint Insolvency Examination Board. And that's, uh, I believe it's three exams, an exam in personal insolvency, an exam in liquidations, an exam in administrations, and um, those exams are sat once a year. Uh, the course the course is sort of for the year building up to it. They are relatively technical. Um, I personally found them more challenging than I did my university degree, but I think everybody's perhaps different in in the approach it's very formulaic you need to learn the law you need to know the law you need to be able to regurgitate the law onto a onto a, a word document in order to sort of set out various examples that may or may not happen um, before you do that some people do what's called a cpi exam which i think is a certificate in proficiency and insolvency uh, i'm not sure if it's multiple choice or, or what it is um i know that some people find that in itself quite difficult but the JIEB is, is definitely a step up from that um, but so you don't need it as you're saying Dan doesn't have a, a degree um, or anything no. so that's not a requirement no. you can literally just no. specialize professionally into um, yeah. into that area sure some people some firms would like people to have a degree in order to consider taking them on but I think you know in this day and age every firm's different and I personally, if I had my time again, I wouldn't have gone to university and I'd have tried to have done my exams a bit earlier. But, you know, everybody's different. It's easy to say in hindsight. And I suppose university was a good learning block for me in terms of social things, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. generally what it's it's there for, I think, nowadays. Um, yeah. In but terms of... That. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's where you come in to try and sort it out afterwards. Um, when I don't it, deal with personal insolvency. I'll make that clear. No, okay. It's just the company stuff. And obviously, we'll, we'll come on to, to sort of some ex potential examples a little later of a few things that, if you're willing to share anyway. Um, in terms of the, the sort of, you were mentioning earlier that your you act as an agent for the borrower. Um, yeah. Is that who the sort of that 
that's who you're actually working for is so so the outcome that you're looking to achieve is it geared on getting the best outcome for them or is it the best outcome for the creditors or or is it kind of a okay so everybody i think i think when i was saying i'm the agent of the borrower i was referring exclusively to lpa fixed charge receiverships as an administrator i would be the agent of the company i would see a fixed charge receivership and an lpa receivership as a non-formal insolvency matter. Um, and I take instructions from the lender, but I have to act in the borrower's best interests. The Law of Property Act is 1925. In 1925, the law was set by the, the, the law lords, and they tend to be the property owners and property lenders. And I still feel that the law of the property act is weighted very much in favor of the lender. So the third party that's instructed, i.e. me, I am the borrower's agent, but I act on the instructions of the lender, albeit I need to act in the borrower's best interests. Yeah, so it's generally, I think that's a, a, a very interesting point. And you can see why the rule makers were the, the landowners sort of previously. So yeah, you can see why that might be um, sort of slanted that way. And I think that's something definitely. I would it's like just to keep my opinion. In. It's just my opinion. I'm not <laughs> saying it's right or wrong. No, but that, that would seem historically accurate, I would say. Um, in terms of so on that, when you're sort of looking to actually, um, let's say for the, the work you do for um, for lenders, for example, when you've got a property that the borrower hasn't been able to pay back, um, who, how much autonomy do you have based on that in terms of do you have to, if a lender says, oh, we need this amount, um, can you say, actually, you know, looking at the scenario as a whole, I think this is what you should accept or um, do you have to kind of be a, in between and mediate between the parties sort of quite a lot. Is that a lot of your job? Uh, sorry. So are you saying if a borrower puts forward a full and final settlement offer to a lender? Or are you, are you saying yeah, that as in, yeah, in market yeah, property? If you've actually had a look at a case for, say, the last couple of months and they've yeah. finally sorted something out or the property's going to sell at a certain amount and they want to put forward a, a final settlement offer um, that you think is a very fair offer, but the lender might kick back on that. How much sway or what sort of um, authority do you have to actually say, look, you you know, you really should accept uh, this? If, if, if a lender's loan is not being redeemed in full, so they're not being repaid in full, then it's up to them as to whether or not they would be willing to accept a lesser amount in order to relinquish their security. Yeah. So, so if a property is worth £100 or there's an offer of £100 and the lender is owed 110 the lender may say, well, you you can't sell that for £100 because I'm owed £110. You know, realistically, they're never going to get that £110 back unless the market improves. But I can't force a lender to release their security unless I'm appointed as administrator over a company and I can make an application to court for the court to allow me to sell the property free of the secured lender's charge. Yeah, no, yeah. that makes sense. Because that's what I was basically getting at is that yeah. how much actual power over the lenders do you have? Um, well, I'd like to think if a lender's instructing us and trusting us to recover their debt, 
that they will listen to our recommendations. So I'd like to think that if we put formal recommendations to a lender to suggest that they should accept an offer for a property, that, that given they've had the trust to, to appoint us in the first place, that they would have the trust to say, well, we accept that your recommendations that you're getting best value. And if my recommendations are flawed, then that's negligence on my part and I, I deservedly would be sued. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that is, is fair enough. And when it comes to an actual good outcome for your jobs, I know there's it's probably various sort of examples and all sorts of different deals. What would you say is your like a, a good outcome from a, a, something you're instructed on? Um, let's say a, uh, the, the, a property. the lender being repaid in full and the borrower emailing me and saying thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Does that happen often? More often than you think, actually. Yeah, sometimes we try and work with these uh, these borrowers. We feel it's very important. We we understand that you know it's their asset, it's their money, it's their lives. It means a lot more to them than it does to us. For us, we're just doing a job. So we do try and, and work with them where possible. Obviously, there are examples where people don't want to work with us, don't want to cooperate with us, and want to have a fight with the lender and feel that the world is against them. Um, and they can be more challenging, but we do try and be fair and, and reasonable with people, and we do find that that they uh, they they that yeah we do get more thanks than than perhaps one would expect. I, I wouldn't say that I get regularly get sent sort of bottles of spirits from borrowers saying thank you, but you know it has happened on occasion. <laughs> yeah and can talking of difficult borrowers is there any yeah. sort of one situation or, or a couple of situations that you've come across that you'd be able to sort of talk about that have been sort of exceptionally difficult um for whatever reason uh i've had a couple um that that immediately spring to mind i had a site relatively recently where uh, there was an allegation put forward by the borrower that, it, and we were involved in court proceedings against him, unfortunately, there was an allegation that the lender's charge uh, had been entered into on an unfair basis. There was unfair prejudice and material irregularity. He said that the interest rate was extortionate. He said that uh, there was a secret commission that had been paid to the broker uh, that, that had introduced the 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 deal to to this particular to this particular financier so the borrower was trying to set aside the um the possession order that, that had been gained we took possession of the property and unfortunately there was forty five thousand tons of toxic waste that had been dumped on the property so the borrower had in the two weeks in the lead up to the repossession because it was it was being transferred to the high court for enforcement so we had to give 40 days notice of our intention to go in and repossess the property during that time he liaised with third party waste providers uh, i believe and i'm not i, I don't want to quote 100 that he'd, he'd sort of made out that he had some sort of waste license and, and dumped all this toxic waste on the site now from my perspective, I then have to ensure that I can sell the site and I either disclose what's there or I take steps to clean it up. And we were very lucky. We sold, we sold the site 
to an independent third party after a very short period of marketing. We got all the lenders' capital back, a large chunk of their interest, and we then have been successful in pursuing the insurance claim for uh, the cleanup cost of the waste. So all in all, that, that was a good result. We've had allegations where when we've repossessed properties, there's been sort of famous artwork, artwork Rembrandt, Cassos, different things like that that have been in the property. And it's been alleged that even myself or the staff have pilfered those items. They that, that tends to be difficult for us because it's very personal. Um, clearly, we're not going into properties ourselves. Uh, you know, on repossessions with our agents if we're there at all. And it's certainly not stealing famous artworks. It makes you think why some of these individuals will go and get a bridging loan for 50, 100,000 pounds, but yet would have, say, a Picasso worth 20 million hanging on the, on the wall <laughs> of, their, of their terraced house. But nonetheless, everybody's different. And, you know, you, you know it, it's just not nice when our staff get accused of, of X, Y, and Z, that, that, bit of the job I don't I don't particularly like so yeah I, I can imagine you know from experience we've seen a lot of borrowers obviously um, and I don't know whether this is it's common or not um, but we find they they like to put their head in the sand until it's a little too late um, yeah. and then working with them is is a lot harder whereas we've had borrowers that work with us and you know, yes, it takes a little bit of time, but everyone comes out with some sort of solution that in the end that they're happy with. Um, and in regards to that toxic waste scenario, um, and this sort of leads on to a, another sort of question. If something happens to the site or or anything like that that adds additional costs um, like cleanup or anything like that, does that typically get added onto the loan? Or um, in that case, obviously, insurance covered it. But how do those sort of unforeseen situations sort of yeah. come about so, and what happens. So in a standard legal charge, the lender will be indemnified by the borrower for any costs and expenses in recovering the debt. So all of those costs are added to the debt. Wow. And that, that brings me nicely on to, um, we get a lot of questions about um, the sort of cost of receivership and, and how that works. Yeah. And if we do appoint an LPA receiver, um, are you able to give us a, a sort of brief outline on how those charges are added? Is it sort of per hour or, um, yeah, how does that sort of work? It depends on the lender and what the agreement you've got in place with them. Okay. Is there any sort of industry-wide sort of standard, yeah, you know, vaguely speaking? The law of property act states you can charge up to 5% of realisations, including sort of all disbursements, so that would be legal fees. Uh, insurance, et cetera, et cetera. It's very rare for us that, that we would actually charge the 5%, but in some instances where we the, the debt may be smaller and it might become protracted and litigious, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, if you're on a time cost basis, then it can be that you do end up charging more than 5% of the debt. So if the debt's 50,000 and, and you end up having various court matters, then, then it could be way more than than two and a half thousand pounds that you charge between yourself and all the solicitors, etc. So the five percent is really there as a guide, uh, but I think hey, each case is treated on its merits and is is very different. 
we get a lot of people saying to us, and obviously we know this isn't true, but um, or or is it? You can you can clear the air on this one. Um, but a lot of receivers um, seem to, or at least it takes a very long time for that process to go out. And we hear all the time, and not just obviously from our point of view, but when we talk to other brokers, etc., um, they say other lenders things take a long time, and the reason for that is purely because the receiver wants to bill more hours um, I, can you put that I to bed I, 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 I think that if that is the case the lender should not use that receiver again <laughs> yeah well, as I, I've, I've heard of them taking years um, to go through and obviously sometimes that's always the reason I think our, our average we did a study on this we looked at the stats I think our average life of the receivership is about three months so oh, wow that's short. It should not. It should not take years. Yeah, and it's how often do you actually get embroiled in sort of long court cases, or is that a, a sort of a rarity? Daily. Okay. <laughs> well, that's at least you get comfortable with that side of things. Um, oh, unfortunately, the, it's, yeah. Do you, how do you um? And this is something that I know I struggle with. Um, yeah. It's sort of separating. Um, the, the sort of personal side of things, because I know whenever I've spoken to a borrower, I instantly feel uh, sort of bad <laughs> and I, I try to do what I can. And obviously you're doing this on a daily basis. How do you sort of separate that and, or do you, or, or does it affect uh, you? Ever? It's, it's something I personally, I struggle with. I'm, I'm not very good at separating it. Yeah. Is there any th sort of tactics that you've built on or is it just sort of every case might nice, just sort of... Nice nice glass of red wine on a Friday night. That's fine. <laughs> no, that, that, I think that's a good idea. Um, well, I'm not sure if it is or isn't. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes at the time it feels like it is. Yeah, it's necessary evil. Um, in regards, at the very start of the, the conversation, you were saying obviously with the where the world is currently do you see the need for somebody like you increasing over the next sort of six to 12 months or um you th how what's your sort of prediction in terms of i i i i don't know um i think it's very difficult to predict the future without having to sound like cristiano ronaldo but you don't know what is going to happen um i would never have predicted the effect of the mini budget having what it had um i think that those if we're just looking at bridging now i believe that those bridges that are self-funding or have very stable uh funding agreements in place may be able to hold assets for longer or or resist appointing or resist enforcement if the market does dip compared to those that are paying a standard premium or a standard rate to their investors on a monthly basis and I think those that actually have a cost of capital sat there, obviously there's opportunity cross, cost across the board, but the cost of capital, I think those that are finding that that cost is increasing may have to, have to act a bit more, a bit with a bit more haste. And that could see the market move perhaps a bit quicker than, than it's destined to do at the moment. I, I think that a lot of this is... Um, will have a multiplier effect and will be down to the banks and how the banks decide to tackle this sort of inevitable recession. Um, 
in in 2007 i was on secondment at a major clearing bank and their strategy at that time was to put everything into auction and they they did that very quickly and even if they suffered a loss they weren't particularly concerned and i can't see that happening in the next six to 12 months i just i don't think that people will have the appetite for it and i think that it this potential recession could be over relatively quickly if consumer confidence returns as long as external factors don't influence things too heavily in terms of foreign investment etc yeah, let's hope so. And have you seen any um, sort of correlation with your business that, in terms of interest rates, or is there anything that typically you see out there that is an indication that actually well, I think you might get week, busier? We, we, last week we had maybe ten to fifteen completions due on the. I think it was it was the it was towards the start of the week. It was like the Monday, Tuesday, um, and a number of people couldn't when when they had an exchange they actually couldn't complete because the mortgage offers were pulled or terms changed i do think that's settled down a little bit since then uh, since the height of that but uh, i don't the honest answer is is it going to impact on my business i don't know i i I can't i can't say one way or another i think there's too many things up in the air i think a lot of people are struggling but does that mean that banks are going to start enforcing more at this stage? Personally, I don't think they will. Whether or not they will be in the start of the first quarter of 2023, maybe. But I think a lot depends on how hot it is over the next three to four months and, and what happens with inflation and other things such like that. For your business, obviously, that occasionally, as things get worse, it can get better for you um, or potentially might get busier for you um, you know without sounding sort of really mercenary is that something you occasionally um, not hope for but uh, a sort of not exactly it's not as bad for you when things turn bad or is it does it impact you as well I think it impacts everybody I think there's a general mood there's a general sort of feeling look I don't know how you found it but I think over the last couple of months the last few weeks especially people have been very frustrated um just in a day-to-day life you know people you're dealing with have got less patience and i think attitudes are shifting a little bit people are more uneasy with the current climate une- uncertainty in the future as in the future as to what's going to happen and i just think people are looking at things in a slightly different way and i do think that that very much impacts on me yeah i you know even this week I've had calls. I need to see you tomorrow at eight o'clock in my office in London. Uh, I've got to go through this with you. It's critical. So I think that life is a lot more difficult for everybody in a recession. And people's expectations have changed somewhat in terms of what can be delivered in what space of time. And that makes it harder for us as well. No, that's perfect. Thank you. And then um, I think that will call it a, a day for now if that's okay with you um is there any for everyone listening um if you want to sort of plug anything or if we're let people know where they can find you um or is that not something you really need to worry about it's up to you if you Uh, do far away i think that that obviously i'm always you know we're always open to help people if we can 
I, the only thing that I would say is that anybody who's listening to this and they've got a receiver appointed is to try and sort of work with that individual, bearing in mind the cost position. And if they can't work with them, then find the appropriate solicitors that will try and engage and try and bring everything to a satisfactory conclusion for all parties. Um, and I would also make sure that throughout the process, if a receiver is appointed over asset you own, you document what you're doing and how you're doing it very well so that you can share that with third parties. And when you look back on things, you can see what was done and why it was done. And if there is any potential issues that you could then pursue, then you're open to doing that yourself. No, I appreciate that. That's some good advice, I think, for everyone. And yeah, on that note, we'll we'll call it a day. So thanks so much for your time, Edward. Really appreciate it. Cheers, um, and then yourself. we'll speak to you soon. All right. All the very best. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.